Great to see you today. My name is Pastor Scott Lug. If you are visiting with us today, we're really glad that you're here and uh, hope you just really sense the presence of God as we, as we worship today and, and receive his word. We've been in this series uh, called The Lion Roars and we're going verse by verse uh, through the gospel of Mark. And the reason why I've been calling it The Lion Roars is because Mark portrays Jesus, especially early in the chapters, uh, in the early chapters of the gospel of Mark as really uh, Jesus coming in the power of a roaring lion. And so you see this, uh, this theme of the power of the kingdom of God, the power of Jesus manifesting itself as he begins his ministry. So you see that Jesus has power over the demonic realm where he speaks and demons obey him. And then you begin to see that Jesus uh, speaks and he has power over disease and people are healed. And we, we also see that Jesus has power in his word over the wind and, and the rain and even so much that the, the elements obey his voice. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Dustin talked about Jesus' power and authority to forgive our sins. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about Jesus' power to change a person's life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be reading from uh, verses 13 through 17. And as you're turning there, let me kind of tee it up this way. In March of 2016, then-President Obama was, was hosting a state dinner uh, for the Canadian Prime Minister. And so on the guest list for that state dinner were all the kinds of people that you would expect would be invited to a White House state dinner. There were politicians, there were pop stars, there were philanthropists, uh, just, you know, the rich and the famous and, and uh, the prestigious, everybody, everybody there. And um, also on that guest list was a 60-year-old lady uh, by the name of Twyla Legree. And Twyla Legree had uh, gone back to college later in her adult life and finished up her college degree. And so she had written a letter to President Obama saying, I just want to thank you because he had encouraged those who had not finished their degree uh, to go back in, in their later years and, and finish it and get their college degree. And that's exactly what she did. So she just wrote a thank you note uh, to President Obama and it actually made it to him and, and he read it. And in his response was to turn and invite her to this White House state dinner. So you can just kind of imagine the scene. So Twyla and her husband, Mark, sitting right next to on one side of them, a Senator of the United States. And then on the other side, was the Secretary of the Treasury. And you know, the White House has a press corps that covers them, it covers every inch of kind of what they do. And so there were reporters very much interested in why in the world would, you know, why in the world would Twyla Legree be invited to this White House state dinner? So they were doing some investigation to find out who the Legrees were. And, and uh, their conclusion was that Twyla and her husband Mark were just kind of nobodies that they really shouldn't have even been there, that they didn't know what the whole story was. And uh, they really, from their perspective, should have never been on that guest list at that state dinner at the White House. Now, I share that with you because that is exactly the sentiment that we're going to see in today's story. Mark paints a picture for us of a group of people that are, in essence, having a state dinner with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, people that really shouldn't be in his presence. People that are not worthy to share a meal or even sit at a table 
in the, in the presence of Jesus. But that is exactly where we, we find them today. And, and the passage that we're going to look at in just a moment is really a breathtaking picture of the grace and the mercy of God. And I think what we see in this story is that God's grace works in such a way is it takes nobodies and turns them into somebodies. I think what we see is the grace of God work in such a way that he takes outsiders and turns them into insiders in the kingdom of God. Praise be to God. Well, I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand together as we read the word of God this morning. So Mark writes this, this is verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. You know, there are at least two different groups that, that just fundamentally misunderstand the grace of God. I think the first group of people are, are the people that are very much aware of their own sinfulness. They, they very much aware that, are aware that they know that they're sinners, they're broken, they are dysfunction, dysfunctional, and uh, they're, they're selfish. They're keenly aware of that. And ultimately, it's a good thing to be aware of your own sinfulness. Uh, that's a good thing. But sometimes, if, you know, if you're like me, you can, you can kind of get focused on that. You can get so obsessed with that, that instead of leading you closer to God, the knowledge of your own sinfulness can actually lead you away from God. And uh, the reason why is because you can become, you know, so obsessed with how broken and, and selfish you are that you can begin to think that God is frustrated with you, that God could never forgive you, that God is disappointed in you, and that God could never use you. And for some of the people in this group, you know, the bottom line for them is, I'm so bad, God could never love me. And for you, there's no hope for change because you see your sin is so much greater than the grace of God. That there's no way God could love you. There's no way God could forgive you because of what you've done. You would be amazed at how many people are actually in that group. How many people actually think that way. And if you find yourself in that first group, I want to tell you, I have some really good news for you because the story that we are looking at today really addresses us, uh, addresses this entire question, reminding us, yes, our sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. That though we are great sinners, Jesus is an even greater Savior. But there's a second group of people, and this is where I think a lot of us kind of find ourselves uh, today. We we, uh, we struggle in the grace of God in the sense that we, we know we're sinners, but we just don't think we're that bad. 
you know, we, we think at the heart of it, we're pretty good people. And, uh, and while maybe the first group kind of underestimates the power of the grace of God, I, I think the second group really underestimates our own depravity. And the problem here is that we have, have grown blind to how much sin has infected us and how much sin affects us. And so our thing is, is we just are not really desperate for God's grace, as Dustin talked about last week, because we just don't think we need that much of it because we're really fundamentally good people. Now, of course, you know, we know that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've known that verse since, you know, we've started going to church and we know that that applies to us. But immediately when we start thinking about our sin, we start comparing ourselves to other people. And our bottom line conclusion is, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm a pretty good person. And so you're pretty good at recognizing how desperate other people are uh, for the grace of God. But, you know, for you, you're doing pretty good. And so you look at your husband and say, man, he really needs the grace of God. I know that for sure. Or you look at your coworker or your classmate or whatever and say, well, man, she really needs the grace of God. And I think the problem with that is, is that it leaves us where we're not really amazed by grace. We don't stand in awe of what God has done for us and how God has worked in us and what God has shown us uh, that we really fail to see that that God, you know, didn't have to save us. There's nothing requiring him to do that. In fact, I think a lot of us kind of think we're so inherently good and righteous that, you know, there was something attractive to us that, that, that kind of brought God into our midst and uh, enabled him and required him to give us grace. And so I think that's where a lot of people are. You know, we're hardworking Hoosiers, you know what I mean? We pay our taxes, we love, we love our country, you know, we, uh, we help people when they're in need, and, and uh, you know, we've prayed the prayer. I mean, what else do we need? We've done everything we need to do, right? And that's, that's kind of the perspective that, that so many have. And I think what, what we see here is that both groups kind of reveal that they, that they really don't understand the grace of God, that they fundamentally misunderstand it. And we certainly don't see our desperate need for God's grace. And the thing that I would say is this, that when our eyes are open to the grace of God, when we really begin to see how sinful we are and how needy we are for the grace of God every single day, it changes our perspective. It changes our outlook on life. It, it changes our attitude. It, it completely changes our approach because, because we, we've, we're coming to understand that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. You see, that's when we've come to truly understand what grace is all about. And so what I want to do this morning is I, I want to just share with you three reasons why the grace of God is so amazing. Just right from this passage, three reasons why God's grace is so amazing. My prayer is, is that our eyes would just be opened to the reality that we are the beloved of God, that we are his sons and daughters in desperate need of God's grace, but man, man, are we loved. We are loved by him. So let me, let me jump in and share this with you. The first reason why grace is so amazing is because, because God's grace really accepts me where I am. 
It accepts me where I am. Let me show you this in verse 14, and we'll kind of begin to unpack what's going on in Levi's life. Notice, notice what Mark says about Levi. It says this, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, this is, really, this is really a powerful passage. This is really a powerful verse. And I think, I think there's a phrase in verse 14 that I think is the key to unlocking the entire passage. And I think once we begin to understand this phrase, we, the whole passage just starts really to open up for us on, on completely different levels than we've ever even thought before. And the phrase is this, sitting in the tax booth. That's the most important praise in this, in this passage. Because you see, Jesus, Jesus was walking through town and there was a tax booth, this kind of small hut, if you will. And, and Levi is sitting in the middle of this tax booth conducting his tax business. And this is just amazing. What you have to understand is this, tax collectors were the most hated people on the entire planet in that day. And they were hated for two reasons. The first reason is because tax collectors were really crooked and dishonest. They were greedy. And so they were, they were Jewish men who contracted with the Roman government to collect tax money from their fellow Jewish citizens. They would collect that tax money and then hand it over to the Romans. But a part of the practice, which was widely known in that day, was that the Jewish tax collectors would overcharge the people and they would keep the overages for themselves. In other words, the practice was the tax collectors would get rich off of stealing from the population. The Romans didn't care. As long as they got their bottom line cut, they were fine. They didn't care how, how that money came in. But you can only imagine how infuriating this was to the Jewish population because they knew what was going on. And so the, so the people saw these tax collectors as thieves and crooks and swindlers, and that's what they were. In fact, tax collectors were so bad, they were banned from going to church. They were not allowed to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. Many times, tax collectors were disowned by their own families. And not only that, but the priest and the temple considered tax collectors unclean. They were not allowed to worship at the temple. But it even goes deeper than just greed. I think the, the second reason why they were so hated is, you, is really you have to understand that the Jewish people were expecting God to send the Messiah and that the Messiah would come. And what, he, what he's going to do is he's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and set the people free from, from Roman domination and from pagan control. And that's what every Jew wanted more than anything else. And so what you have are these Jewish tax collectors actually supporting the Roman apparatus of oppression over over God's people. It was the ultimate betrayal. And that's how they were viewed. You know, if you, were to, if you were to go to any Jew in any community in Israel in that day and you were to ask them, who are the most wicked people in your community? Nine times out of 10, they would name a tax collector. And that's exactly what is going on here. And Jesus is walking down the road, a group of people with the disciples are following him 
and he comes into town, he walks by this tax booth, he goes up to Levi and he calls to Levi and says, Levi, follow me. And Levi immediately gets up and follows him. It's one of the greatest pictures of grace that you'll ever see in the entire Bible right there. And the reason why is because, because, because Levi is literally in the act of stealing from his countrymen. He is literally in the act of swindling and, and you know, acting on his greed, his worst instincts. And Jesus steps into his world and invites him into a relationship, invites him into walking with him. Now, church, do you know what that's called? That's called grace. And I see, what we see here is the working of God's grace accepts us where we are. It always starts right where we are. And that's the, that's the picture that we see. It's like right in the middle of Levi stealing from the people, Jesus offers to him love and relationship. Jesus offers to him grace. Now, the Bible you know, Mark doesn't mention, you know, some kind of crisis of conscience that Levi is having. He's not sweating in his tax booth, you know, just struggling with guilt and shame and just looking for some kind of prophet to come by that he can confess his sins to. None of that. The Bible doesn't paint that picture at all. It just paints the picture of Jesus entering into the world of Levi and, and affirming him and accepting him and, and really loving him. Now, here's, here's really the thing. If what's holding you back from serving Jesus, if what's holding you back from, from worshiping Jesus and following Jesus is the fact that you're caught in some sin today, that you're sitting right now in some tax booth that you know that God doesn't want you in, and your image of Jesus, your picture of Jesus is that he stands outside that tax booth with his arms folded and he's just shaking his head saying, you filthy sinner, you need to get your act cleaned up before you follow me. If that is your picture of Jesus, I just want to tell you, you have the wrong picture of Jesus. Because the reality of the gospel is this. We see Jesus pursuing us, chasing us, loving us and calling us into fellowship with himself. That's what we see over and over and over again throughout the scripture. Now, church, make no mistake about it. And I need to be clear about this. Jesus calls Levi out of the tax booth. He calls him out. But make no mistake about this. Jesus loves him while he's in the tax booth. You see, it's love, it's love that is expressed and it's the love that gives Levi the power to walk out of that tax booth and to leave it behind. And so Jesus wants him, calls to him, pursues him right in the middle of his sin and so the good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to clean yourself up before you can start following Jesus. You start following Jesus and he cleans you up. Does that make sense? And that's exactly 
what we see. And so when you experience this kind of grace, when, when you experience the knowledge and the reality that God knows your sin, He knows your habits. He knows your hang-ups. He knows your struggles. He knows your inconsistencies. And when you realize in the middle of that knowledge that he loves you anyway, it's life-changing. It's liberating. It absolutely sets you free. And it changes you. And we see the power of the gospel to change us. And and really, there's a number of reasons for this because I I think at, at the most basic level the gospel really shows me who I am it reveals to me the nature of who I am and what I've become and it's not just that Levi is a sinner the the reality is I'm a sinner the reality is all of us are sinners and the gospel delivers that news to us and it's just true it's just who we are it is what we become and the problem is universal the problem is all of us that we've rebelled against our creator, we have gone astray, we have broken his law, we've missed the mark, we've rebelled against him, we've, we've done our own thing. There have been things that we've said that we shouldn't have said. There have been things that we've done that we should have never done. And so in the middle of that, what has happened is it has severed our relationship with God and that incurs the wrath of God. Scripture calls us objects of wrath. We are literally enemies of God because of what we have done because of the choices that we have made. And the gospel shows me the reality of that. The gospel also shows me my great need. It shows me that I can't rescue myself. I can't fix myself. It it, it reveals to me that I can't save myself. That's why Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You know, when you're sick, who do you go to? You go to a doctor. You know why? Because you can't heal yourself. You need help. You need someone else. And so there's nothing I can do uh, to raise myself up and solve the problem that I have. You know, if if my problem was like intellectual, I could just take another class. You know, if my problem was financial, I could just get another job, right? If my problem was physical, I could just go to the gym. I could take care of those problems. But my problem is a lot bigger than that. My problem is, is there's something fundamentally broken within me that takes me away from what I know God wants for me and what I should be doing. And so my problem is my choice, my choice to sin, and I need I need saving on a completely different level. And that is, that is a very sobering reality, right? So the gospel just really reveals my great need. But what the gospel also does is it offers me a gift that I don't deserve. It offers me a gift that I, I just, I, I don't deserve, that I've not earned, I, I, I can't achieve. And, and the amazing thing is I just simply don't deserve it. it you know, grace grace is the gift of a new start it's the gift of a new heart it's the gift of a clean slate it is it is the gift of of absolute transformation and I think Levi knows what he has done I think he understands the guilt and the shame of his choices over these years and and I think 
I, I think he, he understands God's love in the middle of this. And as a result of understanding God's love and grace and his own helplessness, he gets out of that tax booth and he follows, follows Jesus. You know, I was reading uh, in Christianity Today, there was um, a gang member by the name of Casey Diaz. Casey was a, a gang member since his teens in, in uh, Los Angeles. And he was, he was the gang leader. I mean, he was the ring leader of the Rockwood Street Locos. And this was a gang in Los Angeles that was devoted to um, home bur- burglaries. They were devoted to robbing convenience stores and then killing rival gang members. And Casey was the leader of it. He was arrested by LAPD for, and sentenced to 13 years in prison for second degree murder. He was transferred to New Folsom State Prison. And on his first day in New Folsom State Prison, the prison guard went up to him and said, said Casey, we know who you are. We, we know that you are a shot caller. And a shot caller is someone who leads a gang. So they knew who he was. They knew, who, who, they knew how influential he really was. And so what they decided to do was put him in solitary confinement. They put him in an eight by 10 cell, no windows, no internet, no books, no TV, no radio, 23 out of 24 hours a day, he was all alone in that cell with just one fluorescent light over him. And this is what he says. About a year, at New, about a year into New Folsom, I was lying in my bed and I heard this older woman say, is there someone in that cell? And the prison guard that was with this older woman said, yes, ma'am, but you're wasting your time. She answered, well, Jesus came for him too. So she approached the cell and this is what she said. How are you doing? And Casey responded back, well, I could be doing a little bit better. She said, young man, I'm gonna pray for you. There's something else I wanna tell you. Jesus is gonna use you in a powerful way. He didn't know what to make of that. Obviously, he wasn't a Christian. He had no idea what she was talking about. A year later, he was lying on his bed, daydreaming. He looked up at the wall and something strange was happening. Something absolutely bizarre. A movie was playing on the wall that portrayed the crucifixion of Christ, which was, which was reenacted in vivid detail. And this is what he writes. What got to me mo- most was when this man was on the cross, he looked at me and he said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. Now he shuddered in fear because he realized that only his family knew his given name, Darwin. That no one else called him by that name. No one else in the prison. They all called him Casey. And so immediately he says, I hit the floor in the middle of the cell and I started weeping because I knew somehow God was revealing himself to me. And I started confessing my sins, he says. He said, God, I'm sorry for stabbing so many people. I'm sorry for robbing so many families. And with each new confession, he said, I felt another weight of guilt and shame coming off my shoulders. What Casey said was, this is the start of my journey of faith. He said, I was no longer a shot caller. He said, I found a new calling. I was an evangelist to tell other inmates about the grace of Jesus Christ. 
you know what makes grace so amazing? Is, is it's God loving us right where we are, right in the middle of our sin, that he accepts us right where we are. And so even if you find yourself today, church, in your own tax booth, I just want you to know, I just want you to know that God loves you right there. He knows where you are. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to set you free. And that's what God's grace does. It just accepts us right where we are. But number two, God's grace turns possibility into reality. It turns possibility into reality. What do I mean by that? Well, see, the grace of God accepts you where you are, but uh, it doesn't leave you where you are. It changes you. It uh, transforms you. And so Jesus calls Levi and uh, Levi follows Jesus. Um, and, you know, they, they, they decide to go to Levi's house. They're going to share a meal together. And uh, what's fascinating about this is Levi invites his other tax collecting friends. And they come and they're invited to share this state dinner, if you will, with, with Jesus and invite some other sinners there as well. And so, so they're, they're absolutely, they're, they're in Levi's house. They're sharing a meal. Jesus is reclining at the table. They're, you know, they're you know, eating and enjoying fellowship, all these tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes kind of peer in the window and, and notice, notice how they respond. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice how, notice how they describe, you know, the people in this room. They describe, they describe this group as tax collectors and sinners. And so what that shows us is the Pharisees could only see their past. That's all they thought about. They, they looked through the window and all they could see was everything these folks had done in their past. All they could see was what they were. Tax collectors, hated tax collectors and sinners. You see, the Pharisees couldn't see what they could become. They couldn't see the potential. But Jesus did. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, for the most part, you know, they didn't really understand the working of God's grace. It was such a foreign concept to them. You see, in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, these people only deserved judgment and condemnation. But in the minds of Jesus, he had started, in the mind of Jesus, he started a work in them that would change them forever. That's what I think is so amazing about grace is when you begin to realize the love of God in your own life, it changes you. We, we live in such a performance-centered world. And what we do is we transfer that. The transactional world that we live in, you know, if, if, you, if you're rich enough and you're good enough and you achieve enough, then you're a person of worth and value. Then you can be loved. That's the transactional world we live in. And what we do is we take that and we apply it to our relationship with God. And what that shows is we don't understand the love of God because, because what... The truth of grace is, is the fact that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more than he does. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. He loves us perfectly. 
And it's such a foreign concept to us that it's almost scandalous to even believe it, that God would love us so much. But, but what happens is as you begin walking in the love of God, you begin to realize that, yes, we live in a fallen world and life is hard. But what you begin to realize is the love of the Father expressed through the Son and applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And it's absolutely, it's just life changing. And so you begin to grow. You begin to change from the inside out. And, and really what the Spirit of God does is uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And it's all done by the grace of God. And, and so we begin to mimic the character of Jesus. We begin to reflect the image of God. And uh, you're like, well, what does that really mean? Well, let me tell you what it means practically. It, it, it really it really looks like this, that the characteristics that we see in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 begin to manifest themselves in our character. Or the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 begin to pop up in our relationships with other people. Or the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 begin to become a living reality. Not a, not a perfect reality, but a reality nonetheless. And what's happening is God's changing us and working in us because you see, he, he, he takes possibility and he turns it into reality. That's what he does. One great verse on this is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. And, and uh, you know, we, we love this verse, but we often think about verse, verse 17 and we, we forget about verse 16. But let me, let me show you both verses. Verse 16, the apostle Paul says this, from, he says this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's what he says. From now on, we, we, we don't evaluate people from a worldly point of view. Now, let me skip down and show you verse 17 because he tells us why. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the fact that in the world system, we tend to judge each other by, you know, how much money we make or how much education we have or how good we look or, you know, all the people that we know or how famous we are, or how many social media followers we have. We assess value to a person's life based on those externals. And Paul says, we don't do that. Because what we see is a person's value is inherent to the fact that they are image bearers of God. And so therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That old stuff, the old externals has passed away and the new has come. That's how we evaluate one another. And so there's this huge connection between the grace of God and, and our character and it working in us to transform us. And so, and so really what this means is, church, that God is, God is growing us. He's changing us. And he's working in us. And I know there are days, you have a lot of days where you feel like, man, that's the last thing happening to me right now. Like, if anything, I'm going in the wrong direction. But God has promised that he that began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so a lot of times what happens is we get kind of frustrated. You know, we, 
we get frustrated when circumstances aren't going very well for us or circumstances are difficult or hard or just gut-riching, whatever it is, we get frustrated. We ask, why is this happening to me? Why is life so, so difficult? And it really shows that we're forgetting that to be transformed in the image of Christ, we have to go through what Christ went through. And that's the work that God is doing in us. You know, uh, what's fascinating about Levi is that later on, after he had followed Jesus, his name was changed to Matthew. You know what Matthew means? It means gift of God. It literally means grace. And so here you have Matthew following Jesus, who used to be a swindler, used to be a greedy crook, who's been transformed into an evangelist. He's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Like when you experience the love of God at that level, it, it just changes you. Like your chains are gone and you're set free to become who God wants you to be. You know, this past month, we, we just lost a, a dear member of the Stones family. Her name was Ginger Brandon. Uh, Ginger was, joined our church a couple of years ago and she was just, if you knew Ginger, she, she was just the most energetic joyful bubbly person you would ever meet I mean she loved Jesus she was a teacher and a school administrator and she loved her students she loved the people that she worked with and she just saw that God had given her a gift to help others grow and learn uh, intellectually and so she used that uh, for the glory of God in her school and in, in IPS and uh, you know as I got to know her I got to know her story a little bit she had accepted Christ at the age of 18, a very young age, and she started following Jesus, and she started really growing in her love for Jesus. But she, she really had this internal struggle in her own life. She, she, she really struggled. She knew that she loved Jesus, but she just didn't really think that Jesus loved her. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, she just always kind of felt like for years in her Christian life, she was just never living up to the standard. She's just never getting there. And her conclusion was there was no way Jesus could love her because she was just constantly coming up short. And there was just a set of circumstances in her life when she was in her mid-30s that just through the word of God, growing in her knowledge of the word of God, and then just her experience of grace it was as if God just whispered to her, I love you. And she was transformed. She was changed by the grace of God. And it just set her free to be who God made her to be, to love people, to serve people, to love God and to serve God. And that's, that's who she was. And then, you know, a few weeks ago, God called her home. But I'm just telling you, church, when you experience that, everything changes. It just changes right here. Here's the last one. God's grace moves me to mission. It moves me to mission. You know, I, when I think about what's amazing about grace is grace kind of propels me into gospel boldness. Because when it, 
when it changes you and when you know that you're loved by God, like fundamentally loved by God, even in the midst of all your weaknesses and failures, when you know that God loves you, it just sets you free. It secures you in his love to tell others about the grace of God and the love of God. Now, I could stand up here all day, church, and I could, you know, I could preach on why you should be sharing your faith and, you know, why you should be evangelizing and witnessing and all of this stuff. And, and for some of you, it would kind of land on you like, oh, okay, just something else I got to be doing, you know. But when you experience the grace of God, it's, it's not something you have to do. It's something you want to do. Because you just want other people to know the incredible love of God. And that's, that's what Matthew does in this dinner party. I mean, he invites a guest list of people to show up so that they too could come to know the love of Jesus. And you see it in verse 15. Uh, Mark records it like this. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Now, my question is why? Why were there many there? Why were there many following Jesus? I think because Matthew told them. I think he told them, I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I think they saw the change in him. And they're like, this guy is the real deal. We want to hear about this. And so they go and they sit at the feet of Jesus and, and they're transformed. It reminds me really what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, he says for the love of Christ really controls us. For the love of Christ compels us it's that love in us where we want to just share with our family and our friends and you know we can't control what other people do we're not we're not called to control what other people do by the way but we are called to just share about the grace of God just to throw seeds out there just to issue invitations and see who God will bring to the state dinner to hear the gospel. So here's my question. Is there anybody in your life that you know just really struggling and they need to hear the message of God's grace that God loves them right where they are. God knows right where they are. I think you're the one that's supposed to tell them. And so I wanna challenge you to do that. Let me just close with this. You're here today and You've never really crossed that line of faith. I, I want to ask what's holding you back. The grace of God is the greatest thing on the planet. God knows you. He loves you where you are. My sin, your sin, it separates us from God. But the good news is whatever sin that is, you can't outpunt the grace of God. His grace is greater than your sin and my sin. And so if we would turn to Jesus, we would receive the good news, we would repent of our sins, that grace would become a living reality in our life today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the reality that we are your beloved, 
that we are loved by you. There are no secrets that we can keep from you. There are no lies that we can tell you. You created us. You, you allowed us life, breath. You brought us here today to hear this amazing message. And so God, I just ask through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would, you would take the work of the Son who died on the cross in our place for our sins to, to bridge that gap, to bring us to the Father. I ask that that work would transpire today, that it would, that it would be enabled today so that our eyes are opened and our hearts are softened and our souls are saved by your amazing grace. So thank you for loving us. Thank you that we're all in the same boat. There's no one here that's got it together except for you. So thank you. Thank you for your grace. Pour it out in abundance today. May it be real to us. Not something in our head, but something in our head and in our hearts. Something we know. Something we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said.